Welcome to Restoration Dialogues, where ideas and the felt experience of being human come together to support personal and collective healing, the restoration of ourselves and our society, with your hosts, John Earhart and Scott Brown. Welcome to Restoration Dialogues. This is John Earhart and Scott Brown. We're here with Amina Nolan. Scott, what's up? As I deepen my identity as a peacemaker, I've been really drawn to reading some of the Christian peacemakers and their writing. We talked about this on the last podcast with, uh, with Stephen Bross. He mentioned Thomas Merton and Henry Nguyen. But I just finished a little book that Henry Nguyen wrote called Peacework. And it was really, it was really profound. And so I just find myself going deeper into the spiritual dimension. And I found his writing really helped me stay in my heart. And he's really clear, and Merton is really clear, that that is where peacemaking happens. That it's not about having a great strategy and a lot of doing in the world. It's about living and coming at life from the heart with that openness and trusting the greater intelligence that we're all a part of. So it's really just deep territory and I'm, I'm soaking it in and just noticing the noticing my heart and the call to be in my heart more. Maybe that'll prove relevant to our discussion with Amina today. I don't know. That would be cool if it did. So that's what's alive for me. How about you, John? Yeah, well, that, I think, touches close to what's going on for me. I was at a... Uh, mindfulness panel at a local high school last night and I was serving as a panelist and there was mostly uh, parents uh, in the community of high school kids and that that really radiated as a theme throughout the evening that this how important it is to uh, come from the heart and be in the heart with our children especially our teenagers, and to teach them about that. And I was, I was really encouraged by um, this experience because the people there were really hungry for uh, the mindfulness practices that we were talking about. And they wanted it also for their, uh, for their kids because the kids are living these stressful lives with an incredible amount of expectation on them, high expectations on them in their lives. And so it became clear to me how relevant and uh, important these conversations that we're having are to everyday life. Yeah, and how cool you're bringing it directly to parents, because that is challenging territory these days, and that the kids are getting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we should mention we have uh, Kuma as our uh, guest as well today. Special guest. 
special guest, and he's going to chime in possibly from time to time. So the panting, that, that wasn't me. <laughs> well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Amina Nolan. Amina co-founded Matrix Leadership Institute in 1990. She's been offering training, consulting, and facilitation in organizations, businesses, healthcare networks, schools, faith-based groups, city governments, and communities in the U.S. for almost four decades, and in Russia for the past five years. She also leads community-based public training in cities across the U.S., currently in Boulder, San Francisco, and Chicago. She considers herself a social artist, working to transform models of leadership and communication from the paradigm of separateness and mechanistic hierarchy into one of interconnected living systems. Matrix Leadership Communication and Leadership Networks establish mindful connection and communication between all individuals in a given team or group. From this foundation, conflict and competition are transformed into win-win dialogue and highly collaborative emergent leadership. She considers herself a midwife of the human side of sustainability. Prior to founding Matrix Leadership, she worked as a Hakomi trainer and psychotherapist, a system of mindfulness-based, body-based psychotherapy. She was also a co-owner and practitioner in Wellspring Partners in Health, a holistic medical clinic in Boulder. She also leads retreats for women entitled Fully Embodied Woman, Remembering the Sacred Feminine. And Amina has two adult children and lives here in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome, Amina. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Scott and John. It's quite a treat. So we'd like to start by bringing out a little of your story. And since we don't have time to hear the whole thing, I'm wondering if there are a couple of pivotal moments that helped awaken you to this work that is Mm. so inspired and inspiring. Mm, Great question. Um, You know what I think of are a few, like, just little highlights. And the first one I think of actually came probably in my early 20s when I think of I had... What I think of is I got cast into separation. Do you know where I, I, I was misunderstood profoundly? And I remember saying, either I'm crazy or the whole world is crazy. And that actually got me to start psychotherapy as a client. And that was sort of an awakening moment. And then fast forward a lot of years and I went to graduate school, um, actually left medical school to make a right turn because I also encountered a lot of what I now think of as separateness, you know, um, competition and kind of everything the opposite of mindfulness <laughs> that you all are about. So I got a degree in, in as a, a counseling psych. And then in my early career, I encountered Hakomi, Ron Kurtz and Hakomi, 
which was really my first true exposure to a mindfulness-based psychotherapy. And of course also body-based, so it was very holistic. And it was just like home to me. And then fast forward a few more years, shortly after I became a Hakomi trainer, I would go around to Hakomi trainings, which are very intensive by nature, people getting trained in psychotherapy, you know, they're together maybe for a three or four day weekend, once a month for nine, 12 months. So what was happening is people began to not be able to work together. You know, like there was a tension, it was such a strong training to the intra-psychic, like working on yourself, but there was no attention to the group or to the relationships. So I had a background in group work by then, which was not natural for me. I think I, that could have been an awakening moment. I think I learned it because I was not good at it, being in groups. So, um, but at that time, a crew from Hakomi basically came to me and said, would you please create a training in group leadership and working with groups? So that was a very pivotal moment that really was the inception of doing a formal training in what then we thought of as group dynamics and group leadership. And it's really over this 20 plus years that it's evolved like many other systems from being this founded in this mechanistic sort of power dynamics, hierarchical dynamics, to how do you really shape groups um, so that they are based in mindfulness, in open communication, in relationships, so that they really can function as an interconnected system or whole. So that's how I got here, and I'm, of course, uh, still going strong. I love, I love every group I work with. I'm very inspired. So, and it's not something I would have ever imagined that I would be teaching about groups. You know, so it's been quite a path. Mm-hmm. Have you learned all there is to learn about? Never. <laughs> <laughs> That's the really cool thing, you know, mm-hmm. is that if we get out of that model of separate individuals and really into, I loved what you said about the heart, by the way, because. One of the things we now say in Matrix is if we get connected enough with open communication, with mindfulness, if we build relationships so that they have trust as the groundwork, then what really develops is love. So we like to say love brings up anything unlike itself. You know, and then the groups themselves. So that means love brings up anything that's not love, so it can be like sloughed off, so it can be transformed. So then the groups actually function as a mindful whole, if you will, you know, almost like, I loved also you said, connected to that greater intelligence, and we talk about that very overtly. We never lose sight of the fact that each group is held in a larger matrix, and if we can bring forth the intelligence of all the different people, different individuals, different values, different perspectives, different cultures, if we can bring those forth in an additive way, a synergistic way, a collaborative way, it would be the word in business, then we actually get this collective intelligence that's sourced in a larger intelligence. So your language was 
was uh, exciting to hear, Scott. This, this feeling like uh, an ever-widening sphere of, of both influence and impact on the system. Mm. I love um, the word sphere and what I see because I can see your hand gestures, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is this ever-widening sphere. Uh, We use the word network, our web, Mm. um, our matrix. They're kind of synonymous. So that sphere of influence and impact, it's it's also a sphere of receptivity, and it's also a sphere of impact. So that's a cool image. Mm. Well, you know, one of the things about matrix model is it's so deep as I kind of review my own interaction with it in the past it feels like something that can keep going not only out but down and in it's so deep and there's so many uh, facets to it it's it's and it's so beautiful it seems to all be linked together at the same time in the same way that it's that it's also very um, varied and intricate, uh, so, and so maybe a question that that might be leading me to, it would be to ask, and I'm going to try to define a little bit what uh, how restorative practices might be linked to it, and 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 then I'm going to ask you to help me. So one of the things that the way that I think about restorative practices are that. We're taking this. We're taking this inner work, mindfulness, this um, coming to uh, truth, and and turning it into action that heals heals woundedness, and 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 maybe rights wrongs as well. And so and so, my question um, is: uh, Do you see a way that that matrix the matrix work uh, is directly related to to that idea i see so many ways <laughs> it's, a, it's a very i love your awareness first of all about the depth and the um both the inward into the person and the outward mm. which is the action in the world i think one one response to how it relates to restorative practices is in Matrix, we have a certain sequence. Again, in an ideal context, we work with... Sometimes we don't have that ideal context. But if we have the time, we start by building this almost like a relational infrastructure. So people are getting to know each other as sort of extraordinary, ordinary fellow human beings and cultivating trust. And we we think of that as cultivating a ground of health or a ground of resilience. And it's very much based in mindfulness and and also connection to something greater. From there, when groups of people ordinarily in the old mechanistic or hierarchical sort of models, they all say that what needs to happen is conflict. You know, you got to get to this storming, right, or healthy conflict. And I now consider that old school. And instead, what, which is where I think it really starts to fit in terms of the outward healing action part, and then I'll come back to the inner part in a moment, 
What we now understand is that instead of, we don't need conflict, <laughs> we need to be able to relate to each other with our differences, in our differences. Like we actually, groups actually need their full, different intelligences. So those are things that people in a hierarchical model are often in conflict about or power struggles, or it's a win-lose, either-or, debate kind of paradigm. So we're actually bringing people into, can we get curious about those differences? Can we engage in dialogue, even a multi-perspective dialogue, with the understanding that every perspective has intelligence? There's no such thing, if you get out of the paradigm of separateness, as just one person's problem, or one person's issue. There's no such thing even as the bully being the bad actor, right? We start to say, what is that bully expressing on behalf of the system? Yeah, or the, or the school, or the classroom. So if I fast forward from there a little bit, you know, and think about what does that lead to in action in the world, it's incredibly restorative to get people out of a, a win-lose good, bad, my way or your way, you know, into a let's really understand each other. And and where there's been, of course, I think you know this, John, we, we also teach a lot about, it's almost like restoring a culture of feedback to what feedback really should be. Yeah. So if feedback isn't criticism and coming from top down, you know, um, power over. Power over. Mm. Then feedback is is learning to invest in the relationship and give each other data about our impact on each other. So that's incredibly healing and restorative if we can learn to say, "Wow, thanks for letting me know that that's how I'm impacting you, and that's not my intention." So there are a lot of, of course, things that can come in when, when the sort of damage has already been done, you could say, in a certain group, which often in consulting contexts I'm called in, to where people, I mean, I read the pre-surveys and it's almost like I'm getting hate mail, you know? I'm afraid to go in the room. <laughs> and honestly, if I, I've never yet had it not be restorative to walk in and get people connected first, build that trust, use something like appreciative feedback so people feel appreciated, mm -hmm. and then shift whatever dynamic is going on into dialogue, into engaging with the differences, valuing the differences. And when people, as you know from your work, when people feel heard and understood and valued, and they're taken out of that model of Win lose, good bad. That's healing. That's healing on a you know whether it's a school classroom, or a family, or a you know globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think of one other thing that feels really key. Um, I know I'm talking all around it. Just it's so it's such a consciousness shift to think of every perspective as part of the intelligence of the whole speaking yeah. instead of oh this is the problem one or this is the enlightened one why don't you just get with the program 
Yes. And I think you probably remember that we even understand now that if there's a if there are two people who can't get along, which I know your mediation work would often address, we now understand that those two people are quite likely doing the differing or the fighting for the whole group or the whole family. Yeah. And if other people start to be willing to bring in their differences with each other, suddenly that pair can't figure out what they're fighting about. How great it would be for for children, especially mm-hmm. children who are emerging into young adulthood, to know that their differences are honored. Oh, it's incredible. You know, we have a man in Chicago who's implemented this in his high school classrooms, and he's now done a dissertation, and now he's teaching other, teaching and coaching other teachers in what he's calling a model of social and emotional intelligence. And he is integrating it into classrooms. And so kids, you know, it breaks down clicks. It breaks down this notion that, you know, it, it's not that people lose their identity. They can still have a core identity as, you know, an athlete or a, someone who loves theater. But it breaks down the, the separation and the good-bad just to, to be able to dialogue across differences. So... I should pause there and let you say something. Oh, man. I'm on a roll. Well, yeah, wow. I mean, there's at least five podcasts worth of material. <laughs> but I, I just, I really want to just emphasize my sense that you're, you're taking what can be kind of a theoretical, philosophical idea of systems and really making it real. In, in your groups and in your work and I just so I also want to underscore what you said about the bully because bullying in schools is a huge issue and I would be surprised if in those discussions very many people ask the question hmm I wonder what this bully is channeling from the system you know it's all about the bully and what's the bully and what's wrong with him or her and so I just, I just love that, that you are acknowledging the system, the importance of the system in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking about interbeing and interrelatedness in a really concrete mm-hmm. way. It just feels so profound. I love that phrase, interbeing, and certainly interrelatedness is at the core. And you're, it's very astute observation you said about taking something philosophical and theoretical about systems. And I think it's because we didn't start with the theory. You know, we, it emerged, and then I started to find the theory. And going, oh, this is what we're doing. And we're actually, one of the things I often say is that most people, at least in our way of life, anybody who'd be listening here, tend to have the idea that we're interconnected and interdependent. But our communication norms and our leadership norms don't support that. Well, even our beliefs. Our beliefs. I mean, we may, exactly. we may know Consciousness. it mm-hmm. you know, intellectually, mm-hmm. but those subconscious, usually unquestioned beliefs are so much about separateness. Yeah, I, I think we're all deeply indoctrinated. You know, we've grown in the soil of separateness. So we ha- it takes quite a 
an experiential, practical, here are the sort of practices, and we do think of them as practices, much like meditation practices, um, that actually create functional interconnectedness. Yeah, you're living it. You living live it. it. Absolutely. Live so exciting every live time I see it. it. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I love that how the theory you say saying how the theory actually comes out of the practice, not is not the other way around. Yeah, initially That's, for sure. Wonderful. Now it's a little bit both ways. Right. You know? Like yeah. now the theory informs the work and the work informs the theory and it mm-hmm. it's not separate, of course. <laughs> you know, which right. is yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's one of the things that was coming up very strongly for me, and, and I think this always happens in these, in these conversations, but is how directly what you're saying about conflict and that lack of appreciation of differences is front and center in our political discourse, and it is directly related to the culture of violence that we see and experience in the in the world and in our lives it's they're so they just feel so related to me and so there so there is this way that what you're talking about can contribute on a global scale this is something that it's a theme in our podcasts is this question about um, how do we end war and and I think that you've spoken so directly to that in, in, in a lot of ways um, but is there a way that you would expand on that question? I am so passionate about this mm-hmm. <laughs> um, both on a you know war and violence everything from the family well within the self I suppose also but, you know, the family relationships all the way to the global level political as well as international Certainly what I've said about engaging with difference and valuing difference is core. If, we could, if I could shift one thing in the world, that would be a, a key to actually shift out of the model of good-bad, win-lose, and power, you know, power over, would be huge. And when I think about dialing that down into practical things in the world, in the world situation, it also, you know, there's something that happens, you've both alluded to it just listening to me talk, when we take the time to get to know each other as extraordinary, ordinary fellow human beings who care about children and grandchildren and the earth and, you know, have books we love to read and hobbies and we get connected as human beings. And I think of some of the work I, I get to do in Russia, which has been huge for me in terms of this arena, because I grew up in yeah. the 50s, 60s, where you know all I had about Russians were stereotypes. Socialist, capitalist, peasants, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting to know the people in Russia, mostly who are very contemporary, you know, they, they've read everything I've read. They've studied everything I've read. They know the world has to be different. Getting to know them as hum, human beings is, is peace building, of course, bridge building. And I think apply that in any context if we can get to know each other. And then we have a resilient ground where we can engage in our sometimes very polarized 
charged opinions, you know? People have strong beliefs, um, partly because they think they have to defend them, you know, because of all that conditioning to have to defend. Um, and of course, in the world situation, people have been killing each other's children for generations. I mean, it's, you know, horrific. So I think building this heart connection is a good way to, in terms of where you Scott, started out, Scott, and of course with mindfulness, you know, we're entering into it with the capacity to witness, um, which is something that I think is, is embedded in everything I do. Mm-hmm. Then people can actually come together and engage in, you know, where sometimes they are fighting, in quote, for the same resources, you know, out of, out of deep conditioning. Um, but if people, if you put together this knowing each other deeply, you know, caring about each other, each other and getting that we care about the same things together with really transforming the whole understanding of conflict, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then I think we start to have a pretty strong practical platform yeah. for for world peace, for transpartisan politics. By the way, all of this applies mm-hmm. to to being able to work across the aisle, which yes. a colleague here in Boulder, Mark Gerzon, is working on. And it it reminds me of something that Scott that you speak of a lot, which which is shifting of worldview. And if there is a, a worldview shift that could happen here, it's around this this appreciating differences and of uh, valuing differences, not just you know, not just tolerating, but actually valuing different opinions, finding finding the truth in them, finding the the, the intelligence, you know, the gift. Yes, yeah. right. And that lived experience of interbeing seems to me the the ultimate ground for, mm-hmm. for that. And what I appreciate in what I'm hearing and feeling is just how natural this level of, of re- relating is. And because I, I came in kind of wanting to, wanting to drill down on some of the capacities and qualities that it takes to really go deep into a group and to really build that trust and that honesty and what I'm what I'm hearing and feeling is is just how natural that is if people just come together with that intention I assume intention is maybe ultimately the the thing that's needed and then the rest will will play out and it may be messy at times trial and error-ish but it's just feeling so natural in the way you present your work and the way you do your work? I think it is ultimately natural. You know, it, it, it can certainly be... I mean, there's a series of practices. You know, there are probably six to eight, depending on how you count them, that we implement in a sequential way. And you're absolutely right. If people come together with the intention of learning this, well, that's golden. Sometimes I go into consulting situation and the intention is we need to have less turnover, you know, or we need to have, we need to get along better. Um, and that, as long as there's an intention that sort of will pull people together for some purpose, um, even if it's a community or a family, you know, we want to live together better. 
then I think applying these practices, it is, I just love that you pick up the word natural. I think it is natural if we weren't trained out of it, you know, if we weren't conditioned out of it. And the part I haven't spoken to that you referenced earlier, John, about the deep, the deep inner work, in the right context, and of course not all contexts support deep inner work, less so in corporate America perhaps, not always. Um, once we get that capacity to stay in connection with our different intelligences and stay in connection with source, our interbeing, or whatever, by whatever name you, you call that greater intelligence, that principle that, that I called love and you called heart connection starts to be palpable in the room and in our connections. So people start to feel valued and supported and included on a deep level. So as an aside, this works incredibly well in what has been called diversity work, you know, where the isms come in, the systems of oppression. But what I want to point to in terms of the depth is if I hold a core conditioning in me that I don't belong, or I'm not valued, or I have to fight for my opinion, or whatever it is, that core conditioning is going to get illuminated by the love itself, by the interconnected or interbeing. And it won't hold. You know, my deepest wounds that come from my deep experience, my lineage, my biography, may be revealed. You know, they may get activated, but in this kind of mindful container uh, where there's so much love present, they just are, they're no longer the truth. They can't hold in the face of this truth, as you're calling it, which I love. So uh, you're right, it, gets, yeah. it can get very deep. And when you said it may get messy, Scott, I just want to say it's it's cool you said that because if you start getting out of hierarchy and out of top-down control, you have to get out of knowing and silos and lone wolves and experts. And that all means there's going to be chaos. But if you have enough interconnectivity and resilience you can surf the chaos, you know, and you come into a different relationship with mystery, with not knowing, with trusting that the the surest path, the, the most adaptive or innovative direction will emerge. You know, whatever is healing will emerge through that interconnectivity. And yes, sometimes that means surfing some chaos. <laughs> yeah. so. You know, what comes up for me is back to this idea of it being natural and that to me relates directly to the idea of restoration because what one of the things that restoration does is it takes us out of the conditioning which is unnatural and reveals the natural and and that's why we have practices that help us do that to, to un, unhinge us from that conditioning and bring us back to a natural way of being Love that. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and I just want to say, and I think this is a good note to end on, is just how hopeful all this is mm-hmm. and how, how beautiful. And thank you so much, Amina, for bringing this into the world. It's a real, 
innovation and so creative and I just honor you for bringing it to the world so thank you and thanks for being with us thanks so much Scott and John it's wonderful to be to just have such core understanding and resonance you know with with what you're doing and thank you it's totally a pleasure such a pleasure for me too thank you thanks for listening to another edition of Restoration Dialogues until next time keep it human